Good morning. Thank you for being with us. Hey, uh, one thing real fast that I want to say, if, uh, if you're with us and you describe yourself as someone that isn't a Christian or maybe you've been out of church for a long time, you've kind of felt far from God and you're slipping back in, uh, I, I know how risky that can feel and how kind of vulnerable you feel, but man, thanks for being with us. This really is a safe place and uh, we're thankful that you're, you're with us today. No question, no bit of doubt or skepticism is off limits. And so anything we can do to help you process the claims of Christianity, we would love to do that. Uh, the second thing I want to say real fast is that we're really excited to, as a church, um, start these things that we're, called, we're calling For the City Symposiums. For the City Symposiums, we're going to have our first one coming up uh, for medical professionals. So here, here's what this is. This is for all of you who are in the medical prof- profession at all, doing anything as a doctor, a nurse, or any other thing. Um, and what we want to do is we want to come alongside of you, and we want to help you process uh, the challenges of faith and the word and how, how those two things intersect. How do you actually do your job, uh, because it really does matter for the kingdom, and how do you do that uh, with some of the ethical issues that come up and some of the complications with faith and that specific role in our city. So if you or someone you know, friends, family, whoever, is in the medical profession, here are the details. It's going to be on Saturday, Saturday, January 13th from 9 a.m. to 12.30 p.m., uh, and that's going to be at our downtown congregation in the heart of Midtown. So spread the word, and here's what we need you to do. It is a free event. It's going to be incredible. We've got uh, ethicists and doctors and all these people coming in to help us. Uh, it's totally free to you, but you do need to register. So go to frontlinechurch.com medical, and you can get more information and register there. Does that sound good? I'm excited about doing those as, as we move forward as a church, uh, creating different spaces for us to re- wrestle with. How does my work and faith intersect? So uh, that'll be a lot of fun. Here's what I want you to do. If you would, grab your Bible and go to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians 9 is where we're going to be. And uh, while you're turning there, I want to pray for us. So Jesus, thank you for just the grace that you've had on us. God, thank you for the, the hires that we were, we were able to announce today. Um, and we pray today as we open up your word and as we talk about the difficult subject of money, um, God, would you, would you allow our hearts to be confronted in all the ways that they need to be confronted? God, would you allow our hearts to be conformed to your heart for this church, for your heart for us as Christians? And God, for my friends that are in the room that don't know you or feel far from you, would just in this, in this topic of money, would, you, would they get a glimpse into your heart and what you love and what you're about? So come and move. We need the power of the Spirit. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. I want to let the cat out of the bag. We're going to be talking about money today. And I can already see in your eyes, some of you are like kind of shifty eyes looking for the exits. Uh, some of you, it's like, man, why did I have to bring friends today, right? Um, and some of you, you're actually visiting and are like, really? This is what I came to church to hear? Uh, so, man, I get it. I get all of the tension. I, I realize that nobody in this cultural moment wants to talk about money. That's not lost on me. Uh, but let me just say this before we get going, that I've spent a, a few months now prepping and studying and reading uh, just and been I've been overwhelmed and completely thrown off in a good way by what God's heart is in the context of giving and generosity just completely thrown off so I want to kind of bring you into um, what I've been tasked to to teach and preach for our church on this topic Uh, and it's really it's just like completely changed my perspective on this whole issue so with that being said um, I want to tell you this did you know that you can now get on Yelp and Google and post reviews for churches. Did you know that? 
It's a real thing. Uh, I remember the days when Yelp was for food. You would go to a restaurant and you would eat chicken wings that you loved and you wanted to rave about them, so you'd go and you'd post a review on Yelp. Or you had a bad experience, and so you wanted to get online and go to Google and leave a review that kind of articulated all the things that were wrong. Well, you can now actually do that with churches. You can get on and leave a review. Uh, And Frontline has actually received some of these reviews. We've received some good ones. We've received some bad ones, which have been really insightful and helpful. Uh, and then we've received just some really weird reviews. So I want to give you some of the ones that we've, we've received. Uh, here's a good one. This comes from Mel S. So if, you're out them, you're, if you are out there, Mel, thank you for, for posting this. Uh, the message is always what I need to hear. Spot on, truth-based words, straight from the heart. Thank you for being who you are, Frontline. Thank you, Mel, for that. That was really encouraging. Here's a bad review. This comes from Scott W. Seeker-friendly church. I attended this church for over a year. Young and inexperienced staff. Ill-equipped for counseling. Counseling is not gospel-focused. Pastor does not return phone calls. Thank you, Scott, for that. That's some good constructive feedback. We'll work on returning phone calls. And if you're out there, we still love you and forgive you. And then here's the weird review. And by the way, this was taken from like six or seven pages. And I had to distill it down. I just pulled out a sentence or two that I thought was classic. This is a review about our downtown congregation. Scott H. says, The lead pastor, Josh Curry, took the stage with his large black beard to offset his hairless head. (laughs) Here's my favorite part. As well as a suit of some material that wasn't familiar to me. The experience was memorable, to say the least. Here's the question. If Jesus were to plant a church in OKC, what would the reviews on Yelp or Google sound like? If Jesus were to plant a church, what would some of the things uh, sound like as people reviewed his church? Well, listen, there'd be reviews all over the gamut, but surely there would be some reviews on there that sounded something like this. Yeah, I've been attending Pastor Jesus' church for a couple years now, and he won't stop talking about money. It's a constant theme. It comes up all the time. At least on a monthly basis, he has an entire sermon where that's all he mentions. It's about money and possessions. It seems to be a really key part of his preaching ministry. And that's true, by the way. Uh, If you look at the Gospels and you look at the the preaching ministry of Jesus, what you'll find is that money and possessions uh, were brought up by him almost constantly. Let me just give you some data. Out of Jesus' 38 parables, 16 of them, dealt directly with the topic of money and possessions. 16 of them. That's nearly half of all the parables that Jesus gave. Uh, if you took all the, go- all the gospels and all the verses in those gospels and spread them out, money and possessions would come up one out of every 10 verses on average because it was constantly a theme. Uh, if, you, if you zoom out and, and look at the whole Bible, Genesis to Revelation, here's what you're gonna find. As a whole, there's about 500 verses on prayer There's about less than 500 verses on faith and over 2,000 verses on money and possessions. So let that sink in for just a minute. Prayer, is that a big deal? Yeah, it's kind of a big deal for Christians. We pray, 500 verses. Faith, really big deal, integral part of what it is to be a Christian. Less than 500 verses. Money and possessions, over 2,000. Why is that? Why does money and possessions take such an integral part of the preaching ministry of Jesus, and not just that, but the whole Bible as well. Why is it such a big part? Well, there's probably many ways to answer that question, but I just want to give you two quick reasons why I think Jesus 
preached and taught on this and brought it up all the time. Here's the first one. Money reveals what we value. Money reveals what we value. Listen to these words from John Piper. He says, money is some kind of currency. It might be paper or metal or in other cultures, perhaps stones or in our culture, electronic records. This currency functions as a culturally defined representation of quantities of value so that the currency can be used to pursue something you want by spending it or giving it or keeping it. Money, the symbolic representation of quantities of value, becomes a moral issue because of the rightness or the wrongness of what you pursue with this gift that God has given you and how you pursue it. You can pursue good and you can pursue evil. You can use it to show that you value what money can get you more than Christ, or you can show that you value what Christ, you value Christ more than what money can get you, which means that the currency itself is not the issue that we must wrestle with. There's something much more foundational, something far deeper than wealth or poverty, even deeper than greed or generosity. In some, then, money is one cultural symbol that we use to show what we value, it is a means by which we show where our treasure is, who our treasure is. The use of money is an act of worship, either of Christ or of something else. Money shows what you love, what you treasure, what you want. And that's why Jesus brings it up all the time. Here's the second reason why this is a big deal. Uh, in the words of Jesus himself, you actually can't serve God and money. You, you can't serve both. In fact, John Calvin says it this way. He says, where riches hold the dominion of the heart, God has lost his authority. Now, obviously, what Calvin is saying here is not that God is no longer king and he doesn't sit on the throne, but what he's saying is when money becomes functionally the thing that you're after more than anything else, when that's the thing that you love and that's the thing that you value, what happens is, functionally speaking, God has actually lost his authority in your life. So this is a big deal, and this is why Jesus brings it up all the time. But here's what we're going to do today. We're not going to talk about money in general. What I want to do with you is actually go down a little bit deeper, and I want to talk about tithing. And I want to talk about uh, giving generously to the church and what Jesus actually expects of us as Christians. And so if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, the way that you can hear all this is not that the church is after your money, because hear me very clearly, we're not. But actually the way you can hear this is if you're wrestling with some of the claims of Christianity, I would love for you to realize that money and how God wants us to use it is a window into the soul of God himself so that we can see what he loves, what he wants, what he values, what he's after. And so I think it'll help you wrestle with kind of who God is and what he's after in our world. Here's what we're gonna do. Usually as a church, we'll take a book of the Bible or a passage and we'll work our way through. But today, we're gonna be all over the map. I'm going to give you a biblical theology of money and generosity uh, from Genesis to Revelation, and we're not going to camp out on one passage, so we've put all of, this, all of the verses on the screen so that you can keep up with us and you can uh, not have to be flipping around like a madman or a madwoman. Um, we will eventually get to 2 Corinthians 9, but we're just going to kick off by asking some questions. So here's the first question. What does the Old Testament teach us about the tithe? Have you ever wondered that? What does the Old Testament actually teach about the tithe? Well, the word tithe comes from the Hebrew word ma'aser, which literally means tenth, means a tenth of what you have. But what's really interesting is that when God brought his people out of bondage in Egypt and he brought them across the Red Sea and brought them to Mount Sinai, something really, really important happened. God, through Moses, gave his people the law. 
Now, there's a lot of reasons why God gave his people the law, but one of the reasons is that God was trying to shape and form how his people thought of life in in the midst of all these pagan cultures and all these other ways to live. What God is saying is, this is how I want you to live. This is how I want you to function in the world. And what God does in the law is he doesn't just institute a tithe. He actually institutes a three-tithed system, a three-tiered tithe system. Three different tithes. Here is the first one. The first tithe is probably what you think of when you think of a tithe. It was a tenth of all of your money and possessions. So all your uh, yearly produce, your flocks, your cattle, your money, all this stuff. It was a tenth of all of that. What you would do is you would grab a tenth of it, and then you would give this tithe to the Levites. The Levites were like this segment of the people of God, and they specifically worked inside of the tabernacle and then later the temple. What's the tabernacle and temple? This is basically like if you and I sinned and blew it real bad, what we would do is we'd grab this animal sacrifice and we would bring it to the tabernacle or to the temple and the Levites and then the priests, they would be there and what they would do is they would actually uh, help us sacrifice that animal and then on behalf of God say, you are forgiven, go and sin no more. So there's this ministry and this mission that was happening through the tabernacle and through the temple and those guys that were doing this ministry didn't have a normal job. They didn't have a way of making an income. And so what God is saying is, I want you to tithe out of your money, people of Israel, and give a tenth of it to this special group of people that are doing my ministry and furthering my kingdom through the tabernacle and through the temple. That was tithe number one. Here's the second tithe. The second tithe is called the festival tithe. And I'll just be honest, this is my favorite tithe in the entire Bible. I love this tithe. Here's why. What God would say is every two out of three years, I want you to take an additional 10% of the remaining 90%. Now we're getting a little bit confusing on math, right? So you've already tithed 10%. Take an additional 10% of the remaining 90%, and I want you to throw one epic party because I'm so good to you. This is literally what God said, right? And if you don't believe me, then I'll just read this to you. This is Deuteronomy 14, and I want you to listen to what God is saying to his people about this party tithe. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before the Lord your God and the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. Did you hear what God said? I want you to eat your tithe, right? I can get down with that. Verse 24, and if the way is too long for you so that you're not able to carry the tithe, like all the cattle and the stuff with you. When the Lord your God blesses you because the place is too far from you, which the Lord your God chooses to set his name there, then you shall turn it into money and bind up the money in your hand and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses and look at this, and spend the money on what? Whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink. Strong drink is literally translated beer. Whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. You shall not neglect the Levite who is within your towns, for he has no portion or inheritance with you. Can you imagine what culture of celebration that would create for the people of God? I've been trying to get some of my friends to go in on this with me in 2018. It's like, let's just do like 2% of our gross salary for 2018 and let's set it aside and let's throw one heck of a party because God is so good and he's, been, he's just given us so much stuff that we don't deserve and let's celebrate that, right? 
That's an amazing tithe. Now, all of a sudden, everybody in the room is listening, and they're excited about the tithe, right? Here's the third one. So the first one, 10%, goes to the ministry of the tabernacle and temple. Second one, it's the festival tithe, the party tithe. The third tithe, sometimes referred to as the charity tithe. This one's beautiful. Uh, Every three years, this was given to the widow and the orphan and the poor and the Levite and the most vulnerable in society, those that didn't have, those that couldn't help themselves, God was making a motion here saying, I want you to actually help them. Three tithes. First tithe goes to the tabernacle and temple. Second tithe, it's a party tithe. The third tithe that's given goes to the poor and those who are oppressed, those who can't help themselves. Now this is why when you and I as modern American Christians, when we hear the word tithe, what tends to happen in our ears is we think what? 10%. And if you want to be really, really, really special and holy as a Christian, then you might give 10% of your gross income, but that's not expected, right? But every scholar virtually agrees that by the time the Old Testament came to a close, the average Jewish person was giving about 23.3% just in tithes of their gross money and possessions. It's way different than what most of us grew up thinking. So don't think 10%, there were three different ones. By the way, there are many other ways that God commanded his people to be financially generous outside of this three-tithed system. Here are a few of those ways. There was an annual census tax that it didn't matter who you were, male, female, young, old, rich, poor, what your socioeconomic status was, every person in Israel every year had to give a census tax which went to the service and maintenance of the temple. This was about a flat tax rate of of about two days worth of wages and and this was given by by God's people. Um, Every seven years, listen to this, it was something called the sabbatical year and in the sabbatical year, all debts were forgiven. Can you imagine if that was our culture today? Every seven years, all the debt that had been accrued gets wiped clean. All the debt that you owe other people and all the debt that other people owe you is completely forgiven every seven years. Deuteronomy 15 talks about that. Every 50th year was even bigger. This was something called the year of Jubilee. This is where God commanded that all prisoners and captives be set free, all servants be released, all debts be forgiven, and all property be returned to its original owners. I mean, this was a big deal. What God was doing is every seven years and then in a bigger way every 50 years, he was taking the men in black thing and hitting reset financially for his people. And what God is trying to say here is that he, know, he, he, he didn't intend for money and possessions to be this thing that people hoarded to the detriment of other people. He never meant it to be that you would have the really, really, really rich to the detriment of these p- poor people over here. And he's trying to create some sort of financial equality among his people. This is profound, and it's not what I grew up thinking. And in fact, even beyond that, even beyond the tithes and all these other things, God is constantly in the Bible commanding his people to use their money and their resources to serve the poor. I spent 2017 reading through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, with this one thought. Like, I looked at every verse that talked about money and every verse that talked about possessions, and I was blown away by how many times those verses are directly connected to the poor. God's heart burns for the poor in our world. Listen to one of the many passages where God commands his people to be generous. Deuteronomy 15, verse 7. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land, and he doesn't mean physical brothers, he means like anyone there in your country, that the Lord your God is giving you, 
you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. We've become really good at that, haven't we? But what should we do? You shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need. What? What does that mean? Whatever it may be. And you shall give to him freely and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. Because for this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be the poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your poor brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. One of many, many verses. So what does the Old Testament teach about the tithe? There wasn't just one. There was a three-tithe system. And by the time the first century rolls around, Jesus shows up on the scene, the average Jewish person was giving roughly 50% of their gross income away in tithes and in taxes to Rome and in all their other financial uh, contributions. 50% of their gross income was probably given away by the time the first century rolled around. Here's the second question. Why? Why did God institute such a rigorous three-tithe system where all these, all these things were put in place to keep his people from becoming way too wealthy to the detriment of the poor or to keep his people being generous to, to those that were in need? Why did God institute the tithe? Well, let me, let me say it like this. If money tells us what we value and what we love, then the tithe tells us what God values and what God loves. And here's what God is doing in instituting the tithe. He is trying to shape and form his people to view money and possessions as a gift, yes, to be enjoyed, but also as a tool for ministry and mission in the world. God never intended money and possessions to be the thing that we live for, that we strive for, that we pursue with everything in us. The goal of God has never been to give us all this stuff and all this money so that we can have it ourselves. In fact, uh, Craig Blomberg says it this way, material blessing was never viewed as an end in itself. An abundance of resources was to be shared with the nations and particularly with the needy. So what God is doing is shaping and forming his people. And here's the thing, it's okay to be rich. It's not wrong, it's not sinful. It's okay to have a lot of money. It's okay to have a lot of possessions. And I'm grateful that we have people in our church that are financially wealthy. In fact, I think if you just look around globally and compare us to the globe, like we're all doing pretty well, just about. Most of us are doing okay. And what God is trying to do here is saying, I want you to enjoy what you have. Enjoy the house. Enjoy the car. Enjoy the stuff. But don't let that terminate there. It has to actually result in, I've given you this stuff so that you can be a blessing to those that are in need. This is why God instituted the tithe. And by the way, this is why, if you look at some of the Old Testament passages, God gets really fiery and really angry and really upset when people fail to tithe. It's not that he's like, hey, I just want you to bring bags of money into the temple so it can sit there. No, God's heart is, you're neglecting the poor. You're neglecting those in need. You're, you're not taking care of the widow and the orphan. Listen to the anger and the intensity in God's voice in Malachi chapter 3. Here's what it says. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how? How have we robbed you? In your tithes and your contributions. The people of Israel were notorious for actually not keeping these laws that God had instituted. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Why does he want food in his house? So that those who are hungry can have it. 
and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will actually call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Let me just pause here and say this. I think most of us probably spot what's often referred to as the prosperity gospel as a bunch of nonsense and really, really wicked. I think most of us know that God is not some vending machine that you can put 50 cents into. If you give the tithe, then a BMW is gonna roll down to you, right? I think most of us get that God is not this pinata that if you just have enough faith and you smack the pinata, then, you know, money's flying out. And, like, I think we understand that. But sometimes what we do, I think, is we, we course correct too far, and then we say there's actually no connection between you having or not having and how you actually use what God has given you. And what God is saying here is, I am actually going to withhold from you, the people of Israel, because you are, not, you are withholding from the poor. And if you are going to keep withholding from the poor, then I'm going to keep withholding from you. There is a connection between how you use your money and how you use your stuff and whether or not God is actually responding and saying, I can trust this person. They are leaning in and they are using this for the glory of God. There is a connection. So that's what the Old Testament teaches, this three-tithe system, and it shows us the heart of God. What about the New Testament? What does the New Testament teach us about the tithe? Well, it's, it's actually really interesting that the tithe only comes up one time, and it's when Jesus is rebuking the religious leaders of his day for missing the whole point. It's like not talked about in the New Testament, except for this one example where Jesus finds these religious leaders that were meticulously tithing out of their spices, like dill and cumin and all these things. They were really doing good at keeping all the rules, but Jesus says to him, you have done this and you've forgotten the whole point. You're neglecting mercy and justice, and you're not caring for the poor. So you've managed to somehow keep all the rules and miss the heart of why I put the rules in the first place. So here's what's interesting. In the New Testament, the emphasis shifts and you don't see this talk about the tithe or this three-tithe system. What you see in the New Testament is even more breathtaking. It's profound. You see unprecedented radical generosity from the church. Let me just give you a couple of examples. Acts 2, verse 42. This is after Jesus had lived, died, and risen again. And the early church is day one at this point. And here's what it says about the early church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And, look at this, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. That is unprecedented sacrificial giving. My house, you need that? My stuff, my car, money that I have? What do you need? Like, here, it's yours. You can have it. Maybe you think this is just a fluke, a one-time thing that happened in the early days. Look at Acts 4. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And look at this. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Let it be said of Frontline Church that no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his or her own. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And look at this, there's a connection here. There was not a needy person among them, 
For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles uh, Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. How did this happen? How did the people of Israel go from barely managing to keep this three-tiered tithe system and, and not really doing it very well to now the early church, these people, they're selling their houses, their cars, their stuff. They're giving away their possessions. They, they had cars in the first century, by the way. That's was what I just said. They're selling their, their horse-drawn buggy and all the things, and, and they're giving it away so that those who are in need could actually be taken care of. How did this happen? How do people go from being naturally greedy and selfish and clinging on to stuff like this to being so quick to give it away and extend an unprecedented sacrificial giving? There's only one answer. They were amazed. They were in awe at the radical self-sacrifice of Jesus. And that started to create a culture of generosity in the church. They saw how much Jesus had given and they were just amazed to the point of not withholding any good thing because God hasn't for us either. This is not a three-tiered system. This is just whatever I have is a gift from God. If you need it, it's yours. This is actually one of the reasons why, by the way, the early church grew so rapidly. Historians, Christians and non-Christian historians, they've looked throughout church history and they've tried to ask the question, how did Christianity ever get off the ground? It was not the biggest religion. It was one of dozens and it was certainly the weirdest religion. It was the most oppressed. It was the most persecuted. There was nothing good that could come of you being a Christian. And what Christians believed was crazy. Yeah, we only believe in one God, not many. And we believe that one God actually created everything, but he entered the world as a baby through a virgin. And then this God, he's actually a man, and then he lived a perfect life. He didn't ever do anything bad, if you could believe it. And then he died on a cross, and something spiritual happened when he died on that cross that makes me forgiven, even if I wasn't around when he died. And then after being dead for a couple days, he rose from the dead, and you can't see him because he's in heaven, he's alive, but one day he's gonna come back and he's gonna make everything new. Like, that sounds crazy. How did anybody ever believe this? Well, historians have pointed to two things. One is the resurrection, like he actually did rise from the dead and that kind of changes things. But the other thing that a lot of non-Christians point to is the early church was so sacrificial. They were so generous. And the world around them was drawn to the generosity of the church. There has to be something about this Jesus because they're so different. In fact, listen to this. This is in the fourth century. So if you think, oh, they were only this way in Acts 1 or Acts 2 or Acts 4. No, no, no. Fourth century. This is from Julian, uh, Emperor Julian. He's a Roman emperor in the fourth century. Uh, he's known in history as Julius the Apostate. His uncle was Constantine. So he's got this great legacy of Christianity in his family. But he grew up and he rejected Jesus and he walked away from Christianity. And he's complaining in a letter to a friend about the generosity of the church. And listen to what he says. He says, do we not observe how the benevolence of Christians to strangers has done the most to advance their cause? It is disgraceful that the Christians support not only their own poor, but ours as well. While everyone is able to see that our own people lack aid from us. He's angry, he's mad. He's like, they're not just taking care of themselves. They're taking care of our poor too. Here's the way of the world. You take care of no one but you. And if you want to be generous, 
then maybe one or two really close friends or family members, you'll get their back. That's the way of the world. Do you wanna hear the way of Christianity? We take care of our own. And even if you're not our own, we'll take care of you too. That is culturally different in such a way that it caused the early church to grow like crazy. Tim Keller actually talking about how countercultural this is. He says this. He says, the early church was strikingly different from the culture around it in this way. The pagan society was stingy with its money and promiscuous with its body. A pagan gave nobody their money and practically gave everybody their body. And then the Christians came along and gave practically nobody their body and they gave practically everybody their money, right? They're like, well, they're a bunch of prudes, but man, they're generous prudes. <laughs> giving, this is what I want for Frontline Church. I want Frontline Church to be financially promiscuous, right? I want it to be said of Frontline Church that, man, those people cannot keep their wallets and their pants, right? <laughs> yes, I just said that. I want us to just, man, what do you need? This is countercultural. All right, so let's ask the hard question. This is what the New Testament teaches about giving. What does God expect Christians to give today? Isn't that the question we're all asking? What, what, is, what does God expect of me today? If I'm a follower of Jesus, if I'm interested in Christianity, what's the expectation? I don't know of a better place to take you other than 2 Corinthians 9. So I almost want to say give yourselves a hand. You made it. We're in 2 Corinthians 9. So look at 2 Corinthians 9 verse 6. This is the most beautifully written, helpful piece on God's heart for Christians today terms of giving the point is this verse 6 whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully each one must give as he has decided in his heart not reluctantly or under compulsion for God loves a cheerful giver can I just stop right there if if I said hey can I tell you something that God loves? If God were to come in this room and say, can I just tell you one thing that I love? I love a cheerful giver. If you're a follower of Jesus in this room, why would you not go, sign me up then? I love that. You love cheerful givers? That's what I want to be. I love a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He, God, has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed. Why? For sowing and an increase of the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way. Why? To be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, it's not only this uh, vertical thing that we, or horizontal thing that we do, but it also is overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. It's this vertical thing too. So here's what this passage is saying. In the New Testament, the idea of giving in proportion to what you have seems to replace the idea of this rigid three-tithe system that God put in place in the Old Testament. So, what does this mean? David Garland says, the tithe put all of the focus on how much one is required to give and it allows one to ignore how much is kept for oneself. Some can give far more than the tithe and have more than enough to provide all the necessities of life. Others barely have two mites for their daily needs. And so what God is encouraging here is give in proportion to what you have. Be generous, be sacrificial, but don't do it under compulsion. So let me ask the question even more clearly. Should Christians tithe 
today? Should we tithe? Here's how I'd answer that question. If God expected the tithe under the law, then Christians should at least use this as a basis for evaluating how much they should give in view of God's saving grace. We should at least use the tithe as a basis for evaluating our own giving. God never put the three-tithe system in place for Christians today, but at the same time, what the Israelites practiced at God's command provides believers with a really strong pragmatic model for evaluating their own giving patterns. Let me say it like this. Can you imagine being being less generous than an Old Testament Israelite who did not know half, not even close to half of the things that we know that God has done for us? I was thinking about this, like, I don't want some Old Testament Israelite that didn't know about Jesus and didn't know about the cross and didn't know about God himself entering human history as a baby, the most ridiculous plan in the world to rescue someone like me, this Jesus who died on a cross in my place and rose from the dead. I don't want someone that didn't know all of that to, to outgive me, to be more generous than me. So the tie that should least be a basis that I use to evaluate my own giving and starting at 10% is starting low in terms of what the Israelites are doing in the Old Testament. Now, I'm almost done, but let me, let me answer a question that I've gotten more than any other question as I've taught this. The, the biggest question that Christians ask is, okay, I can go with you, Andrew. God wants us to be generous. He wants, to, wants us to serve the poor and take care of, of, of the needy. He wants us to use our money to further the advancement of his kingdom and his mission. Yes to all of that, but do I have to give to the local church to accomplish that? Or couldn't I just give to a nonprofit or a person or a specific cause or an organization that's doing good in our city? Do I have to give to the local church or could I just give whoever I deem fit to? That's a great question. It's a really important question. And to understand the answer, I think you have to understand what God intended for the early church in terms of their money. And here's what we see happening. Each local church in the New Testament actually had resources and funds to be used for very specific things. And if they didn't have those funds, they would not be able to carry out their God-given mission in the city. Here are some of the things that they used the money for. Care for the poor. Acts 4, Galatians 2, 1 Corinthians 16, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, all over the New Testament and old. Care for eligible widows. This is interesting. Paul in 1 Timothy 5 comes to young Timothy who pastors a very large church in the city of Ephesus, which is modern-day Turkey. He comes to him and he says, I want you to look through your church membership roles and identify some widows that are in need, that meet certain criteria. And being a widow today is incredibly hard. Being a widow in the first century was a death sentence. You had no way of making a living, no way of providing for yourself. So Paul says to Timothy, I want you to look through your roles, find the eligible widows, and then use the money in the church to fund these widows so that they can survive and have food on the table. Can you imagine if Timothy wrote back, dear Paul, thanks for the letter, but nobody in our church gives to the church. They all give to a nonprofit or an organization or a specific cause, but they're not giving to the church, so I don't have any money to serve these widows with. It's not what Timothy said. He's like, yeah, people give every week. Got it. Check. Done. The money in churches goes for relief aid for other churches and other cities experiencing hardships and natural disasters. The money in the New Testament goes to pastors getting financially supported in the ministry. Just like the priests and the Levites in the Old Testament, pastors in the New Testament, uh, Paul says if you spend your time preaching the gospel, if you're a pastor and that's your primary vocation, you should get money for doing that. Where's the money supposed to come from? 
the local church who gives regularly, sacrificially, generously so that the pastors can be supported and the mission of God can further on through the local church. The money in churches went to the planting of new churches and the funding of missionary endeavors and on and on and on. But do you see the point? You can't do what God says to do if people in the church don't give to the local church. Then the local church doesn't have any resources to actually follow and fulfill these obligations that God has put on us. It's a big deal. So, last thing. How does Frontline think of giving today? How does Frontline take all of this in the Bible and how do we think of giving today? Three words that I want you to remember, just three. One, tithing. This is a beautiful word. It's a biblical word. And and here's what we're saying with this. We want you, if you're a follower of Jesus, we want you to think in terms of starting at a tithe where you percentage give to the local church, where you look at your funds, you look at your resources, and you go, all right, here is a percent. And I would say that 10% is a great starting place. It's a great floor. But if you think that 10% is like the mature way to go, like you're, miss, you're missing out on what God is saying here. 10% is a great place to start. But I pray that that's not where it ends for you. I pray that that's literally the floor for you. Tithe. Second way we want you to think of giving, alms. What are alms? Alms, it's an ancient church history word, and it's describing intentional gifts to the poor. As you see people in our community, in your community groups, as you see people in our city that are in need, that are poor, that have come across a hard time in life, we want to be the type of people that give money to them, whatever they may need. So alms, intentional gifts to the poor to alleviate their suffering. And then finally, the last word, offerings, tithes, alms, offerings. What is an offering? An offering is a more focused, intentional uh, offering that we as a church would take up together for a specific cause or specific purpose. What we did at Christmas Eve, if you don't know, is we gathered together with all of our congregations and we took up the Christmas Eve offering. And this is, this is the compassion offering. Every dime that's given goes to alleviate poverty and suffering both locally and globally. And I'm so thrilled to tell you, it's like uh, last year, or two years ago, I think, it was like seventy, eighty thousand dollars $80,000, I think, that was given. This last year, this last uh, couple weeks ago, you guys gave over $100,000 to be used in our city. Hey, you can clap and celebrate that. That's okay. That's like, you gave that, over $100,000, so that the poor and those who are hurting in our city and locally and globally could be taken care of. Tithes alms offerings okay i'm done i'm done with the notes i don't know if you feel this as we wrap it up but every time i've taught this it feels so hard to me because i can very clearly read and see all that god says and there's a big part of my heart that really wants to go there but if i'm honest with you and i'm imagining some of you in this room feel this there's there's almost an equally big part of my heart that is afraid to go here. This is hard. Do you feel it? The other day I was talking to uh, my, my oldest, Evie. She's six years old and she's awesome, so fun. She's in like one of the funnest stages of parenting ever. And we were processing how to be generous as a family and I was trying to help her be generous. And so I said, I want you to find one of the toys that you really like and we're gonna find a, a kid that needs that toy and we're gonna give him that toy. Let's find something you really like and let's give it away. And you would have thought I said, I'm gonna cut off your arms and your legs. <laughs> she freaked out. 
she was like crying and it was really hard for her and she was like, ah, you know, like didn't want to go there. So we talked about it, we processed it and finally she said this in tears and it was just like summed up the moment. She looked at me and she said, Papa, I want to be generous. I just don't want to give away anything that I like. <laughs> and right when she said that, I was like, yeah, me too. That is exactly what I felt the Spirit of God telling me is, I want to be generous. I just want to give away anything I like. To do this, it's hard. It means that there are things that you don't buy. And there are things that I want that I don't get. And there are, there are things that I say no to and my life looks, to do this is difficult. How do we do it? How do we go from being a people that are naturally greedy and clinching our possessions like this to being people that are radically, unprecedentedly so generous and open-handed to those that need? How do we become people that are generous? Well, here's how you don't do it. It's not by trying really hard to be generous. It's not by putting this down as a New Year's resolution. 2018 is gonna be different. I will be generous. I'm gonna tithe, by golly. By the way, I hope you do that. I hope you put a 2018 New Year's resolution down that this is gonna be something that you do. But that will not change your heart. What changes a heart? What changes a greedy, selfish, clenching onto possessions heart? There's only one thing, and that's gazing at the incredible generosity of Jesus, who though he had everything, he left it all so that those of us who spiritually had nothing could be given all that he had. When you see what Jesus has done, it does something to your hands. It does something to your heart. And the greed and, and the, the selfishness, they start to melt away. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. Would you stand with me? I'd love to invite you to close your eyes. Regardless of whether you are a follower of Jesus or not, this is probably all difficult for everybody. So here's what I wanna do. Uh, with your eyes closed, my hope and my prayer is that while this sermon was occurring, the Spirit of God was starting to press and probe on very specific parts of your heart. There are things that God was specifically talking to you about. He was giving you spirit-filled creativity, ways to be generous. And here's what I want you to do in this moment. Will you just, if that was you, will you make your prayer, Jesus, I say yes to all that you want me to do. All that you want me to do with my money and my possessions, I say yes to that. And then make this your second prayer. Will you, by the power of the Spirit, help me? Will you help me? For others of you, all you think about is debt when you hear something like this. You're drowning in debt. You feel like you're up to your eyeballs in debt. You're spiraling. You can't get out of, con it's out of control. You can't gain control. If that's you today, I want you to know that the shame, if you feel shame today, man, if you're a follower of Jesus today, that shame is completely misplaced. Then in Christ, you're a, a new creation. And Jesus, by his spirit, is actually inviting you to get help today. So today, we're gonna have um, men and women that you can talk to. We can get you help. We have people in our church that are really gifted with this that can sit down and they will not judge you. They will not belittle you. They will not think less of you. They will sit down and they'll help you with a budget. They'll help you figure out a plan. We can do this together. And we're gonna be doing a Financial Peace University church-wide coming up in the future to help you with this. But man, you are welcomed. You are loved. Don't feel the shame that you feel. We wanna help you get out of the debt. If you're here today and you would say, Andrew, I wanna do this, I wanna lean in, but this is just really, really hard for me and I need prayer today, 
I need prayer today. Would you just raise your hand? And I'm raising my hand too. I want to see you. I want to pray personally for you. Man, thank you so much. Across the room, hands raised. And then today, before I pray for you, would you just look up here? If you're not a follower of Jesus, God is not demanding that you give to him today. Here's the crazy thing. The message of Christianity is that he has given everything to you. If you're not a Christian today, if you feel far from God today, he doesn't want your money, he wants your heart.